99.5 FM New York. This is Driving Forces, your weekly news show that's also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and joining me each week is the incredible Celeste Katz-Marston. And together, we dive deep into the heart of the issues that shape our communities, our states, and our nation. This is the show where we unravel the complexities of politics, policy, and the undeniable truth that every decision, every action resonates on a city, state, and national level. It's great to be here with you, Jeff. I, I, I was so excited. I, I couldn't speak for a moment. <laughs> but that is right. We are not just skimming the surface here. We're getting to the heart of the stories that matter with a focus on the topics that affect us all. It could be education, environment, transportation, equity, any other crucial subject. We are here to explore the nuances and provide the insights you need out there in Radio Land. Absolutely, Celeste. We believe that everything happening globally has an impact right here at home. And what's unfolding locally is just as significant. That's why Driving Forces is your go-to show for understanding the interconnected web of the issues that shape all of our lives. It's where politics, policy, and the truth converge. And humbly, we think we have the expertise to do it. So if you're new to the show, I've spent... 25-ish, it's a little more, uh, <laughs> years reporting on politics, elections, voting rights. I've worked for outlets like the New York Daily News. Jeff and I did not cross paths there. Uh, I've also been with Newsweek, the Providence Journal. And Jeff, of course, has three decades more, in fact, of experience in communications, media, journalism. So he has a ton of knowledge to share from his time in the private sector and the public sector. You know, and Celeste and I aren't just talking heads. We're bringing you the insights from the inside. And we're not shying away from the tough questions, from city council decisions to state policies, all the way up to the national and even international stage. We're tackling it head on. Today, we have a great lineup for you, starting with the debate over whether the nation's largest school system, yes, the New York City public school system, should remain under mayoral control. And then we're going to turn towards international issues and how they're impacting us right here at home when we discuss a wall of shame set up to target elected officials and advocacy groups that support Hamas. You know, and I do want to say, Celeste, it's wonderful to hear your voice again, because I know last week was very difficult given your cold. For those of you who missed last week's show, Celeste was silent a lot, and it's so unlike her. She sounded a little like Demi Moore with a cold, but today she's back in good form and raring to go. What has been on your mind today, Celeste? I got to tell you, Jeff, a couple of things. I mean, of course, of course, I've been watching what's going on with the Supreme Court, this incredibly, incredibly important uh, issue of the 14th Amendment, what's going on in Colorado, what's going on with former President Donald Trump being on the ballot and how that's going to play out. I mean, there's so, so much to watch there. And it's certainly, uh, you know, the instant case is specific to Colorado. But is this going to set some sort of a precedent? And how are people going to react to it? Rings up a lot of questions to me about how do people feel about not only this particular case, but about the Supreme Court in general and about our election process in general? Do people still trust our election process? I believe they should. I think we have to be concerned about the potential for things like foreign interference, but I mm -hmm. do think people should have confidence in the election system. And then more locally, of course, I've just written 
recently had a chance to do a piece for uh, NBC Asian America about how Asian American Pacific Islander voters could play a very, very big role in getting to decide whether it is uh, Mazi Pelop or Tom Swazi who ends up taking that New York three seat formerly occupied uh, the the artist at one point, at least known as George Santos. And in fact, you know, uh, what I've been following... What I've been following here locally also is it was earlier this week was Tin Cup Day uh, when the mayor headed to Albany to urge state legislators to provide more funding to New York City. And top of his agenda was asking for more funding to defray the costs of assisting the surge of migrants that have come to New York City. Uh, mayor Adams was there on Tuesday to deliver his annual budget testimony, grilled by lawmakers on the city's response to the migrant crisis, crime in the city, housing, and the topic that we're now going to uh, discuss during this first segment renewing mayoral control of public schools. Now, as a reporter at New York One, uh, at the New York Post and Daily News and way back in New Jersey, I covered education for years. And so I was covering education and then working in government when there was this first move a few decades ago to shift uh, the structure of the New York City school system to eliminate all the local school districts and put it all under mayoral control. Now, this was not a permanent fix because every few years it had to be renewed, and this is one of them. And as Mayor Eric Adams and Chancellor David Banks have urged legislators to renew mayoral control, some like the teachers' union are staunchly opposing this. I want to read, though, a very briefly, before we bring on our first guest, Schools Chancellor David Banks, what the Daily News said in an op-ed just a few days ago. Quote, mayoral control of the schools has been a huge improvement over what came before it, elevating education governance out of the backwater and into the public eye. Little surprise that graduation rates and test scores are ju and just about every other meaningful indicator of student success are way up since 2002. So with that, let's bring on our first guest today, Schools Chancellor David Banks. He's joined us before on the show, just up in Albany last week, urging legislators to restore mayoral control. Did get some pushback, but let's dive right in. Chancellor, welcome back to WBAI. So happy to be back. How you doing, Jeff? Everything's going well. Thanks so much for making time for us today. So why do you and the mayor believe it's crucial to renew mayoral control of the city school system at this time? I'd love for you to highlight some specific successes or improvements that have resulted from this form of governance. Well, first of all, uh, as you alluded to very early on um, when, when, when mayoral control was, was first put into place, um, I, I was around in the system as a teacher and, and a young educator at that time when I saw um, just a level of corruption, dysfunction, nobody really being in charge the way the system actually operated uh, years ago. And it was not a good thing. It was not a good thing for our kids. And, and I was very appreciative of the fact that uh, we were able to get away from that. Um, so, so, so here's some, some hard facts. Um, mural control, the graduation rate for kids from New York City public schools um, when we went to mural control from the very beginning was hovered around 50 percent. might be up or down a point or two, but it was basically around 50 percent. And now today, all of these years later, we are consistently around the 80 percent mark. That, that's just, those are just facts. It has, this, uh, high school graduation has grown significantly under uh, this new accountability system. And very specifically, under the system, since we have been here in the, in the, in the two short years that we have been here, um, first of all, enrollment is up in our schools. For the first time in eight years, uh, we've gone through a terrible pandemic, but, but enrollment is up, which to us is beyond just what's happening with the migrants, 
but it's a real indication that parents and families are coming back into our schools. Our academic performance is up. The most recent state exams were up 12 points in math, we're up three points in ELA, and actually outpacing the rest of the state in both of those, both of those measures. Chronic absenteeism, since we've been here, down 10 percentage points uh, as well. Our teacher retention rates are up. Um, gifted and talented programs, you know, what's important about that, that's just another signal, Jeff, of the fact that the community is expressing what they want in their schools and across the city, and that's what our administration has been doing. We've been listening and we've been delivering. So under prior administration, they were trying to get rid of gifted and talented programs, um, but we expanded them because that's what the community said that they wanted to see. We selected superintendents all across the city um, by listening to parents and families and, and working with them. But I will tell you, in spite of all of those things, the reason why I think it's critically important to have uh, Merrill, what I call Merrill accountability is when you have these big emergency situations like the COVID pandemic. Can you imagine what that's like to manage that if you've got 32 school districts that essentially can do what they want to do? When you have something like this great migration of migrant families and New Yorkers who are coming here, our newest New Yorkers, if every district can ultimately decide if we want to take uh, students or not take students, that's no way to run a school system this large where you can break it up and let everybody pretty much do what they want to do. We would not be able to do the work of NYC Reads and really be able to organize an entire school system around reading and literacy if you did not have this system of accountability. So I say all of that to say this. There is no perfect system, Jeff. It doesn't exist. But when you compare this to what it was, it's not even close. Um, now, a lot of people are saying they don't want to go back to the old system. They want to make some tweaks. Um, but, it, but tweaks that will ultimately take the authority away from the mayor to make big, hard choices is essentially taking away mayoral accountability. What we do not want is a system where no one is in charge because everybody is in charge and everybody can do whatever they want to do. That's not, that's not the best system to, to have, particularly for a system this large and this complex. Schools Chancellor David Banks, we're so happy to have you back here on Driving Forces on WBAI. Thanks for taking the time to break some of this down because it is complicated. And in some cases, it is controversial. And, you know, everybody's a critic at some point. And there are some people who still say that mayoral control puts too much power in the hands of one person and that it stifles community input. Just want to hear, and I'm sure the people out there listening to this want to hear, how do you respond to those kinds of concerns? And what what steps are you taking to make sure to uh, still provide for some sort of inclusivity and collaboration within these decision-making processes under a structure of mayoral control? You know, um, I, I think sometimes the loudest voices can kind of rule the narrative, and that is unfortunate. Um, and, and, and what I mean by that is this. Um, under this administration in particular, um, we, we have – we have engaged the community and we have rebuilt trust in a way that has not existed in a long time. Because I was one of those people who, who would rail against um, the, the sense of folks not listening to the community. But that is exactly what we have been doing. And when you think about community voices and parents, you know, we've got so many different parent organizations. I spend more of my time working and dealing and engaging with parent organizations than I do almost anything else. 
I go to at least two community education councils uh, meetings a month. Th- those are meetings of duly elected parent leaders in every community around the city, and they're all well attended. And folks come out, they share their thoughts with us, and we hear some of their different policy suggestions. We've got PTAs and parent associations in every school across the city. We've got presidents' councils across the city, which are really the presidents of all the PTAs. We've got Title I uh, parent representatives, school leadership teams. I mean, you, 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 you name it, you know, we've got it. Family leadership coordinators, family support coordinators, executive directors of school supports. There are no shortage of parent engagement uh, organizations and groupings and cohorts throughout the city. The, 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 the challenge is that um, when you hear this narrative that we're not listening to parents, um, the, parents do not speak with one voice. Right? We've got a, almost a million students in our school system, and all those kids have parents, and many of those parents don't agree with each other. So uh, but what they want to know is that they're at least being heard, and that is exactly what we're doing. So we've been out there. We've been engaged. I, I think if we were to cut to the chase, I would say this. The Panel for Educational Policy has 23 members, and the mayor has the majority of the votes there. And so uh, we engage them. Uh, we brief them on all the issues of the day. They share their, their voices and their concerns. But I think what most people are upset with is that the mayor, by having the majority, ultimately, if all of his appointees vote together as a block on any particular issue, um, the other uh, the, the the other voices are are, are not uh, you know can't 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 get their way, um, but to some degree you know what we've done is to try to hear everybody, but if you don't if you don't have that, um, then you might as well not have uh, you might as well not have the mayor actually uh, be in a position to uh, to be held accountable, and I think that's what the mayor has said. It's, I don't like it to be called mayoral control. Nobody likes to feel like they're being controlled. But what they want to do is be uh, is to be heard, and the mayor saying, "Hold me accountable. If you don't think I'm doing a good job with the schools, then you should vote me out uh, at the end of my term." Um, but we we go back every uh, year or two uh, back to this, and um, uh, and again I start from that premise: there is no perfect system, but we have been listening. I've gone to the hearings. The state education department uh, hosted a forum in every uh, borough around the city. And I went to those various forums, and a lot of what we heard were people who were upset um, with what it looked like in the past, you know, under the Bloomberg administration. Uh, they were upset with the uh, proliferation of charter schools and the amount of co-locations uh, in our buildings. Um, and, and, I, and I understand people uh, being upset and concerned. But what we have simply said is um, judge us on what we're doing as an administration, and I, and I think that we have certainly earned the right um, not to say that you have uh, a mayoral accountability forever, but certainly during the tenure of this mayor, um, we think that we, we, we've earned that right because we have been fully engaging the community. If you're just tuning in, this is Driving Forces on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston, and my co-host Jeff Simmons and I are talking right now with Schools Chancellor David Banks. And Chancellor, you've talked to us a lot about some of the, the strides that the school system has made in terms of test scores, in terms of absenteeism, and so on. You've also talked about some of the parental involvement and the family supports that go on in the system. Now, again, 
again, sort of crystal ball time here, but for people who are trying to decide whether mayoral control is a good thing to keep around, or maybe it's time to try something different or go back to the way things were, what would happen if mayoral control went away? How would that change day-to-day learning in our schools, as well as long-term planning for improving the system? We're not really sure, because that's part of what's been at issue here. Many of the people who have, ex- who have expressed that they don't um, believe in this particular governance system of mayoral control or mayoral accountability um, have not offered up as many ideas around what, what, what do they suggest that the system would look like in its place. And so um, I think the thing that we all have been very concerned with is that it would go back, that the system would revert back uh, by law to what it was years ago with with the various school districts um, uh, then essentially taking the lead uh, with, with whatever they would want to do. Um, I think there are a lot of people who don't want to see that happen, but absent that, we're not really sure what it would actually look like. It would really be up to the state legislators to then craft a new way forward. And so many of the people at the hearings said they, you know, what they didn't want um, but they were not as clear in saying what they would want to see it look like. So there were some suggestions, but I will tell you, I think one of the best things that I heard from the Advocates for Children, um, who I, I heard when they presented, and I said that makes a lot of sense, which is um, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Let's study this and really do a deep dive on what has worked and what has not and what should some of those improvements be and what would the suggestions that would be made uh, back to the community to say, what would you think of this new system? So we're not there yet. So, and it's, this law is going to run out in June. And so what we've said is, uh, listen, we think we deserve the right to have it extended. Um, and then beyond that, I think the state, in fact, should study uh, the history of this, take a very deep dive, and then make some recommendations of what they think it it could look like, because right now we really don't know what it might look like. And I'm going to give uh, Jeff a chance to jump in here in one second. But I just want to ask you one more thing, which is, uh, you know, as you're looking at the system and as you say, there can always be improvements or adjustments or or uh, reconsideration. Just curious, is there anything about the current system of mayoral control that you do not like? as chancellor, that you do think would uh, we would be better off or kids would be better off if things worked differently? So I'll give you one idea of something that I would be in full support of. We have two student representatives who sit on the panel for educational policy, but they are not voting members on the panel. Uh, I would be in full support of making those students who are elected uh, to, the, uh, to the panel for educational policy actual full-fledged voting members of the PEP. Um, I, think, I think it is in keeping with the values that we have about students as leaders. Um, the way it's set up now, uh, we salute and we celebrate these young people, but when we get down to the, to the hard work of what's really going on, uh, they kind of have to sit on the sideline. And I don't think that that is right. I actually think that they should be full-fledged voting members. Now, there are a lot of very complex issues that we are dealing with in these schools, but I, I think that these young people are brilliant and talented, and I would love to see them uh, have their voices heard. I know many people are, you know, want more parents to be on the board. I would, I would actually, I would actually lean to the side of let's give, let's give some of our young people an opportunity to let their voices be heard in a real way. Um, so that's just one idea. 
that I would certainly support. Not a bad idea. Let me shift topics because I know we only have about five or six minutes left. There was an announcement recently about new curriculum materials that address anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. How do you envision that these materials are going to foster better understanding and address bias in the classrooms in our city school system? First of all, Jeff, let me say this. This is a, this is a huge issue that we're dealing with, right? We have issues of hate that are, that are pervasive throughout society. And, uh, and our schools are part of society, and people bring their own bias and everything into our schools. And so whether they're issues of anti-Semitism or an Islamophobia, as we've been watching uh, as this Middle East crisis has continued to play out in real time, uh, for us, uh, those emotions run very high, even in our schools, with our teachers and our kids. And so this is something that we've had to deal with. But we've got issues of racism that are still exist. We have issues of homophobia that still exist and a wide range of other isms. Um, and, 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 and what we're trying to say is that school should be a place where we know our main focus is teaching kids reading, writing, and arithmetic, but they also have to learn about the relevance and the issues of the day. But they need help in doing that. Many teachers don't even want to address these issues because they don't want to be accused of saying, saying the wrong thing and be accused of being anti-Semitic. Or, or being Islamophobic while they're trying to be helpful. And, and so we've lined up, we're lining up a number of different organizations that will help schools to be able to be engaged in these, having these kinds of courageous conversations because the one thing I'm very clear about, you cannot, we cannot put our heads in the sand and think that it's just going to get better. Uh, that we cannot do. But schools are they're just, they're very afraid um, of these issues and these topics uh, and accuse, uh, they don't want to be accused of doing the wrong thing. So we have to help them in this space. It is not easy. This is a huge system. You have 78,000 teachers. And, um, and the moment you hear about, you know, one thing in a school, somebody hung up a map, it's the front page of the news. And that reinforces why so many teachers don't want to deal with this stuff at all. So what I'm trying to do is to help to lead and guide the system to a re- in a responsible way so we can show up properly for our kids and, and ultimately, you have to educate your way uh, through, through hate. You can't just discipline and suspend and throw people out. That, that's not how you actually change mindset, and, uh, and that's what we're trying to do. And it is not easy, so we need a lot of support. I've developed an, an interfaith advisory council that we'll be announcing real soon as well. Uh, and these are folks from various uh, faith-based groups who also have something to say about it, and I, and I want them to be in the mix and at the table with me to help give uh, give us an uh, offer up some guidance to help us along our way. And you just answered my next question, which was about the Interfaith Advisory Council. So <laughs> let me just move ahead. And I know we only have about two, three minutes left, and I do want to end on a question I know you're going to want to uh, answer. Uh, but uh, at, re- currently in the system, and I know this is these are very difficult conversations for students to have, for staff, for teachers. Are you still dealing with a significant number of, of concerns in schools? Are you hearing about incidents happening where the, you know, the central office has had to step in to try to mediate? Because, you know, we've seen some of the more public incidents that have been well publicized, but are there a lot of other ones that are still taking place in our schools? So that's a really a good question, Jeff. And I, I would say this. I would say in the grand scheme of things, no, not when you look at a system this large. Um, it's, it's not like every day and we're being inundated with all of these complaints. Um, I, I do think people right now are feeling a, a, a deep level of sensitivity around being harassed, being bullied, not feeling safe uh, physically and emotionally, probably more emotionally than anything else. 
Um, and, and in a lot of cases, it's, it's adults behaving badly with one another. And it's so unfortunate, right? And so we've really got to lean toward our better angels here. Um, and, and in each case that is heard about, it's promoted in a way that would make you think that it's just pervasive across the whole system. It is not. Uh, the, the vast majority of our, of our folks in our schools are great, great, wonderful human beings who are trying to figure out a way through a tough time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were just wonderful people. I travel across the city on a daily basis. And I'm just so honored to sit as the head of this school system with so many wonderful, phenomenal uh, educators and students. Um, so, no, I would not say it's pervasive, but a- any incident is bad enough. And there will be more that you will hear about. What we have simply said is that um, we are going to respond as these things take place while we are still trying to educate our way to a better place. And before we let you go, a question that I'm going to put you on the spot. We want to shift to an issue that I know is probably top of mind with you right now. This Sunday's face-off in Las Vegas in the Super Bowl between the 49ers and the Chiefs. What's your predictions? I'm sure I think you follow sports. Oh, I'm a big sports guy. I'm a, I'm a huge sports guy. And, uh, and uh, the, Super Bowl is, the Super Bowl is bigger than sports, right? Like everybody watches the Super Bowl. It'll be a lot of fun. So my prediction is uh, – 24-21, Kansas City Chiefs over the San Francisco 49ers. I think it's going to be a great game, and I think Usher is going to have a great halftime performance, and everybody is going to have a, uh, a great day. I do not know if Travis Kelsey is going to uh, propose to Taylor Swift uh, at the end of the game, but uh, all eyes will be on that as well. We will be looking forward to uh, to your play-by-play call of the Super Bowl. <laughs> Schools Chancellor David Banks, thank you so much for joining us right here on Driving Forces on WBAI. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Jeff, when did you hear about football? <laughs> I, one uh, thing for our listeners, you'll enjoy this because, you know, I admit I'm not, I don't follow sports that well. And when I used to be on New York one and they would put me on the 5 a.m. shift, it was very difficult for me to kind of prepare in that half hour before I had to go live or 45 minutes to learn about anything regarding the sport, whether it was about standing outside Madison Square Garden to get people's views on, on the Knicks or uh, just Anyway, so <laughs> or there's other sports or those things. Other sports. You know, I follow tennis more than anything else for a while. Oh my god! I mean, I remember I went to my first professional uh, baseball game. It was a Mets game as a reporter for the Daily News, and thankfully for Daily News readers, I wasn't there to cover the game. I was there to see how mad people were at John Rocker of the Atlanta Braves for making some really, really oh, yes. sort of uh, low-toned comments about people who ride the seven train and basically to see if anybody was going to throw batteries at him. Wow. I remember that. I remember that. So I know in a few moments we're going to have to shift to the next topic, uh, but we do want to just spend a few moments reminding our listeners about the importance of supporting WBAI. You know, uh, I have to tell you, I, Celeste and I have been with the station now for what, five years, more than five years. We know, we believe in this station, no matter what. We are volunteers. Most of the people you hear here on WBAI are volunteers. We put a lot of work into the show as all of your hosts and all of your producers do, but we don't get money from corporate America. The money that comes in to keep this station on the air comes from you, the people who are listening, whether it's Roger or Daryl or or anyone who is tuned in right now. 
This the is nice why we, lady from the cave. The nice lady from the cave. This is why. <laughs> this is why we always want to remind you of this. So I'm going to give you a phone number to call. If you can call during the show and donate in the name of this show, that's fantastic. But if you just donate to support the entire station, we're just as happy. That number to call is two one two. 209-2950. You can also go to WBAI.org if you would like to donate and lend your support. Because remember, we are supported by you, our dedicated listeners. It's all about you. That is true. And as Jeff said, we are volunteers for more than five years. We have been getting together every week to put this show together to bring you real guests, like members of Congress, the school's chancellor, the man who's responsible for the education of over a million kids in New York City. This is this is not low budget stuff. This is not low rent stuff. And speaking of rent, did you know it costs $17,000 a month to pay the rent on our broadcast tower at four times square, $17,000 a month. And I'm going to be honest with you right now, that is money we don't have. We don't have enough money to run this station the way we should be running it, to expand, to bring you more programs, to bring you new hosts, to bring you more special programming. We need your help. Please call that number, 212-209-2950, 2950. Become a BAI buddy in the name of this program, Driving Forces. You give a monthly donation. Very easy. Only takes a minute to set up. You can also do it online at WBAI.org. But if you want to talk to a human being, uh, as, as I like to say, operators are in fact standing by. 212-209-2950. 212-209-2950. Some things you don't appreciate until they go away. And don't let WBAI be one of them. And if you just tuned in, this is Driving Forces with me, Jeff Simmons, and my stellar co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and also streaming live at WBAI.org. We're going to take a short break in just a moment, and then we're going to be joined by Sarah Foreman, Executive Director of the New York Solidarity Network, which has a new wall of shame that uh, we're going to ask her about. Want to know what that's about? Well, then don't go away. We will be right back.
Driving Forces on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. That was Evelyn Champagne King's Shame. I'm your host, Celeste Katz. Marston and my co-host Jeff Simmons and I are shifting gears a bit right now to continue the conversation that we had with the school's chancellor, David Banks, about combating anti-Semitism. So a new organization called the New York Solidarity Network was recently founded, and it's a membership organization for New Yorkers who have a tight-knit relationship with Israel personally and politically. And the organization's mission is to, quote, empower supporters of Israel with education, events, and the opportunities to form a relationship with like-minded New Yorkers based on shared values, unquote. So among its early advisors is former New York City Council Speaker Corey Johnson, and its website features testimonies from uh, U.S. Representative Richie Torres and Assemblymember Inez Dickens. And its work recently ramped up significantly in the aftermath of the October 7th attack by Hamas on Israel, and it recently introduced a wall of shame to call out politicians for anti-Israel actions. Sarah Foreman is the executive director of the New York Solidarity Network. She's a veteran political operative who has worked on dozens of campaigns, and she led the East Coast state and local political fundraising operations for EMILY's List. So without further ado, Sarah Foreman, welcome to WBAI's Driving Forces. Hi, and thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you here. So we described the mission just briefly there of the New York Solidarity Network. But just to start us off, can you tell us a little bit more about when the organization was founded and what you're trying to accomplish? Sure, of course. So we were founded in 2022. Um, and really what we were initially started to do was to kind of be a an avenue um, in New York, if you will, because politics here are really dominated by low turnout primary elections that are decided by an incredibly small margin in most cases. I mean, we've seen elections recently with less than 100 votes. Um, so this means even a small number of voters or donors or activists can have a tremendous impact in the fight against anti-Semitic office holders and challengers. So, Sarah Foreman, you know, after the October 7th attack, there was a pro-Palestine rally advertised by NYC DSA. And, you know, you've talked about the fact that uh, Jewish people in New York increasingly see the DSA as explicitly anti-Semitic. Now, the DSA, of course, says that is not the case. Curious about your view on that as part of a bigger discussion about um, sort of separating out when you can criticism of Israel and criticism of Jews that ends up spilling over into sort of anti-Semitic tropes? Great question, and I'm happy to provide that difference. So where to begin? Um, Post-October 7th, you know, immediately afterward, the DSA actually, they didn't sponsor the pro-Palestinian rally on October 8th, but they did advertise significantly for it and promote it. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're relying on also a very far-left Jewish fringe to give them cover for their blatantly anti-Semitic, you know, tropes that they're tracing in. Um, one of the things that I think about when I think about the DSA and I think about the Democratic Party, you know, the Democratic Party is designed to be a big tent organization, and we represent a lot of different people, and we represent a lot of different um you know, ideas and a lot of different policies. 
But at the same time, you know, the DSA is seeking to insert division within that big tent. And so, you know, I think it's actually a really, a really hard thing to um, explain because in our own polling, we did polling last year before October 7th, but I still think it's kind of relevant because the polling showed that 68% of Jewish Democrats are pro-Israel. And then it also showed at the same time that 63% of self-identified DSA supporters would vote for a pro-Israel candidate. Even 79% of DSA supporters were supportive of Israel's efforts to fight terrorism and protected citizens. So it was very shocking, I want to say, is the right word, to see this vitriol directed at Israel not even 24 hours after the worst terrorist attack and the largest loss of life for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. Um, so, you know, since October 7th, I think people really have gotten to see what the DSA's true colors are. They, you know, basically celebrated a Hamas massacre as Palestinian resistance while our bodies were still warm. And, you know, people were still being rounded up as hostages, essentially. Um, I think the bar is very, very low right now in terms of what decides, in, in terms of, like, the idea of Israel, you know, and criticism of, of Israel, there's a really low bar out there, um, and somehow DSA still manages to trip over the bar. You know, they can p- pretend to apologize, as they did post-October 7th, with trying to explain away the public interpretation of their messaging, but we'll never really forget how they cheered Hamas and refused to extend solidarity to Jewish victims. And, you know, this is this is kind of the same idea that far-right groups trade in. So um, they shouldn't really affiliate with this messaging as much as they do. And they really need to take a good hard look in the mirror to um, really understand their future, I guess, is the best way to describe it, if they're just going to con- to continue to focus only on the state of Israel as their boogeyman. So, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us here on Driving Forces today. We uh, brought up a little earlier uh, the wall of shame that the New York Solidarity mm-hmm. Network had launched recently, calling out politicians and groups for pro-Hamas statements. What causes someone to rise to the level of being added to the wall of shame? And then walk us through who, sure. you, who you've put on there and why. Sure. So I have to say, first of all, the wall of shame was born out of my own personal reaction to October 7th. We were all doom scrolling how many WhatsApp groups have, you know, we've all been added to and, and all of the just communal pain of the Jewish community in New York. Um, and so I started to um, compile statements and, you know, I wanted to try to figure out a way to make sure that the people who were not engaged in the Twitter space still had access to what these people were saying. And first of all, I just want to say we have to give credit where credit is due because we've seen so many allies and elected officials condemn the massacre and support bringing the hostages home. Um, Those people don't get nearly as much credit as they should. Um, But what I wanted to do and what my organization, um, you know, our intent was in publishing The Wall of Shame is that we needed elected officials to stand up and we needed them to um, show, we needed to show where the extreme far left elected officials were, given that they, you know, given that they were so obsessed with um, trying to, you know, victim blame or 
find a, a reason to give, you know, for Hamas's actions. It was it was just a way to have the public become more aware of the situation that was kind of unfolding in this social media space that, you know, I don't think everybody pays attention to in the same way that we, and I mean we in the collective political and, you know, uh, journalistic space pay attention to. And publishing this information um, was, you know, the main crux of why we had the wall of shame. We wanted people to be aware. And so to get on the wall of shame, you know, we kind of went through all of these statements one at a time and weighed them. Um, You know, were they focused only on, you know, Hamas, where they focused only on Israel's response. And and in many cases, Israel's response hadn't even occurred yet. Um, You know, what we saw and and what was extremely disappointing is that we saw some Jewish politicians even give cover to these fringe groups and far far left elected officials in response to the Hamas attacks on October 7th. I mean, when you see the highest ranking Jewish elected official in the city of New York, Controller Brad Lander standing shoulder to shoulder at a ceasefire vigil one day with avowed anti-Israel activists, very publicly aligning himself with ultra fringe groups like Jewish Voices for Peace. And then plainly, you know, they plainly state as an organization, the Jewish Voices for Peace, that they're seeking the destruction of Israel. Um, And they have a wholesale lack of empathy. Um, They neglect to mention the rape, the torture, the kidnapping of the Israeli hostages. You know, this is not a group you want to be associating yourself with. And then the same elected official, you know, shows up to a rally with a pro-Israel crowd the next day claiming to be a Zionist who supports Israel. So it really begs the question, what does Controller Lander actually stand for? I mean, this is something we wanted to highlight on the wall of shame, because if you try to be everything to everyone, you're really for no one. So Sarah Foreman, uh, talking about the work of the New York Solidarity Network and particularly uh, calling people out in this wall of shame, one of the things that strikes me is is it limited specifically to elected officials and people who are already in the public eye? Because we've seen uh, a lot of activity, including, as you mentioned, on social media, particularly I've seen it on Twitter, handles like Stop Anti-Semitism that have gone around uh, making videos of people, say, pulling down um, – uh, posters of Israeli hostages or or making statements in in you know public places but people who are fundamentally private citizens engaging in those activities is that where you are drawing kind of a line in terms of who you're looking at and and their statements out there is this exclusively limited to uh, people who are in elective office or in public office or are you doing this in terms of people who might be well known uh, otherwise uh, more than private citizens or does it extend to to private citizens too. Well, so where there are many groups out there who are, you know, doing that work that you just highlighted um, of spotlighting, you know, people on the street pulling down the hostage flyers or just engaging in like, you know, general anti-Semitic brawls. Um, we are not focused on that because we really want to make sure that state and local politics and state and local elected officials' opinions in particular are known New Yorkers, because and oftentimes people don't even know who their state and local elected representatives are. And so these people tend to get a pass. They don't get a lot of scrutiny and they're pretty much allowed to like exist in their own ecosystem with their own um, opinions kind of floating around out there without anyone holding them accountable for the things that they say. And so we really just wanted to make sure, you know, not not in a lobbying sense, not even, you know, in any kind of 
um, persuasion sense, we really just wanted to put out to the general public what it is that these people represent and what it is that they stand for. Because you can't expect people to be 100% educated on everyone that, you know, represents them in any capacity. Um, and so we wanted to be part of that education and let people know, well, you know, if you live here, this is what your assembly member is saying, or this is what your city council member is saying. Um, we just wanted to give people an opportunity to understand that, you know, even state and local elected officials get involved in things, you know, on a larger scale. You're listening to Driving Forces on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston and my co-host Jeff Simmons and I are talking right now with Sarah Foreman, Executive Director of the New York Solidarity Network. Sarah, interested to hear what kind of response you're getting from uh, from what you're doing out there. Are people sort of cheering you on? Are they trying to join? Are they sharing information? Are you getting people who are really critical of you? Maybe people who are accusing you of conflating criticism of the state of Israel or specifically even of the Israeli government with hating Jews. What what are you hearing out there right now? Yeah, so I fully expected to get some level of harassment. I mean, this is just the world that we live in today. Um, but I also want to be very, very clear that I am in no way trying to police statements of a political nature regarding uh you know, any government. I think we have a very celebrated freedom of speech. You are free to criticize any elected official, any leader, anywhere. To me, where there's a line that gets crossed is when you are solely focused on only criticizing the broad Jewish community and, and painting a picture of a Jewish community, you know, in a uh, trope manner something that very similar to, you know, what we saw with propaganda in the Soviet Union that, you know, basically created this idea that, you know, anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism could not be conflated. Um, I don't think that there is, you know, anything wrong with criticizing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Like, that's not a problem. Anybody's free to do that. Where the line is crossed is when you say things like, you know, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, essentially calling for the eradication of the Jewish state and, you know, completely dehumanizing and removing any Jewish connection to our ancestral homeland. That isn't legitimate criticism, in my opinion. Um, you know, regarding what people are saying and the response, overwhelmingly been very positive. Um, New York has the largest Jewish community outside of the state of Israel, and while there are these fringe groups on the far left that are getting an outsized, you know, social media presence because they, you know, have a lot of very active and engaged online members, um, you know, and they have protests and whatever, um, it's not representative of mainstream Jewish values and it's not representative of main, the mainstream Jewish community. So... You know, when you hear, you know, when you see these groups claiming to be Jewish aligned and representing the Jewish community and the Jewish opinion, it's really very much misinformation. The mainstream Jewish community overwhelmingly stands with Israel. 
so Sarah, I know we only have about a minute or two left. You know, sure. this is this is a uh, a, so a broad <laughs> question, but what obligation do you think the Democratic Party has in uh, you know in combating anti-Semitism? Has the Democratic Party largely? in your view, drop the ball on this, that they are not doing enough to ensure that, uh, you know, uh, to kind of go back to what Celeste was asking, that anti-Israel rhetoric does not turn into anti-Semitic rhetoric. Sure. I mean, I'm a lifelong Democrat. I registered as a Democrat when I was 18 years old, and I have almost 20 years of Democratic campaign experience. And I've seen a lot of changes and shifts in the party. But I want to just say I'm trying to remain super optimistic about the long-standing alliance between the Jewish voter and the Democratic Party. I think, you know, about dozens of candidates that I've helped elect and all of the young staffers that I've mentored in my career. And, you know, I'm disappointed to say that in the really dark days immediately after October 7th, I heard from very few of those people. And, you know, that was something that hurt me because I was deeply invested in their long-term successes, not only as elected officials, but as somebody, personally, I've, I've made it a point in my career to be present for the struggles of other people. And to not hear from them in that moment was hurtful. Uh, but i got to say, the dozen or so elected officials and staff who did reach out in those moments, you know, their support meant more than I think I will ever realize. And as one staffer that I mentioned, she's a young woman of color. She's an incredibly talented manager and operative. You know, her words were most affirming to me because she just wanted to make sure that I knew that she had my back like I had always had her back. And it was this big tent idea coming into play again. And, you know, this young woman, she attends concerts a lot. And her thoughts were immediately with the victims of the Nova Festival in particular. And in that moment, to see her relate her life, you know, here in the United States, very different upbringing to that of a young Jewish person's life because they both attend concerts. I mean, that's, re that, that's so reassuring to me. And that's what it's about. It's our commonality. And it's just that one simple gesture that gave me hope and not all the thoughts that allies do exist in the democratic space for Jews. And, you know, my personal goal right now is to continue to work to prevent the pull of the far left extremists, um, you know, prevent them from having any kind of, you know, longstanding power within the Democratic Party, because we need to ensure that Jewish pro-Israel Democrats remain in the conversation and that support for Israel remains a bipartisan issue just as it has just as it has been for decades. Sarah Foreman, we always wish we had more time. There's a lot to talk about here, but where can people sure. go if they want to learn more about the New York Solidarity Network or the Wall of Shame? Absolutely. I hope you'll visit our website, which is www.nysn.org, and you can find all the information um, about our organization, how to join, and also you can see the Wall of Shame for yourself. So I really appreciate this. And thank you so much for having me on. Sarah Foreman, thank you so much for joining Celeste and me here on WBAI's Driving Forces today. Have a great day. So I know, Celeste, we're going to have to wrap up in about another two and a half minutes, but we do You're want... always a timekeeper. I know, Jack. I am. I know. I'm, I'm type A. Um, but before we go, we do, Celeste, I did want to take one more minute and just remind you, our listeners, our wonderful, amazing listeners, that we really do need your support. We want to give you that phone number again. We're hoping that you just can take a few moments and make a contribution in the name of this show or any show, although we really want you to do this show on WBAI. Just do this show. Do this show. The number to call is 212-209-2950, or you can go to WBAI.org, click the green button. You just can't miss it when you hit the website.
BAI Buddy Program is a really great thing. You can set up a recurring donation. You give once a month. You can pick the amount. It really only takes a minute. You can do it right through the website, wbai.org, or you can call that magic number, 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. This station has been around for more than 60 years. We'd like it to be around for at least another 60, definitely uh, longer than that, but it can can't happen without your help. You are the key to this thing. If you are within the sound of our voices right now, then BAI means something to you. Please be part of this. BAI, WBAI.org or 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. And I think that's about all the time we have for today's program. We want to thank our special guests today, New York City Schools Chancellor David Banks and Sarah Foreman, Executive Director of the New York Solidarity network. And of course, we want to thank our engineer, Reggie Johnson, and all of our listeners for tuning in. Jeff, are you back this Sunday? Yes, I am. I'll be back here on WBAI at 8 a.m. on Sunday with City Watch. My co-host Carlos Menchaca and I are going to present a real thought-provoking episode as we delve into the often overlooked issue of workplace discrimination and harassment faced by transgender individuals in America. I just finished a memoir called Maeve Rising, Coming Out Trans in Corporate America by Maeve Duvali, who tells the story of her work at Goldman Sachs. She was a front page uh, business section uh, cover story when she came out as trans in the company. And then we're going to be joined by Elisa Crespo, an activist, nonprofit executive, and the executive director of the New Pride Agenda to talk about a report that just came out by the State Department of Labor about the discrimination faced by transgender, nonconforming, and nonbinary people in New York State. So that's 8 a.m. on Sunday with City Watch. By the way, don't change that dial because today, coming up, Democracy Now! with Chris Hedges report, 7 o'clock, Black Agenda Radio. And if you're interested in even more education news, please make a point to listen to Education at the Crossroads at 8 o'clock. On behalf of Celeste and me, we want to thank you so much for tuning in and have a wonderful week. And we'll see you on the radio next week.